many of us, if not most of us, after going through what is a traumatic event, oftentimes say something like this, I just want to get back to normal. You've probably heard that a lot in the last two and a half years since the pandemic began back in 2020. I remember sometime around the beginning of April saying, I, I want to get back to normal. I, I think we will by the end of the month or maybe as late as May. So much for my ability to predict the future. But it does feel like in our culture, doesn't it, that we have returned somewhat to normal? Football stadiums are, are packed. The travel industry is 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 blossoming and blooming like it hasn't in many years. I talked to a travel agent a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago, and he believes that the 2023 travel year will be the busiest in their industry's history. So yeah, it does begin to feel, even in the church, it feels like we're getting back into our regular, normal routines. We mentioned in a, in a program staff meeting a couple of weeks ago that we're feeling a little bit tired not, not tired in a whining way, but tired in a way that recognizes our church muscles, our church work muscles are just a little bit out of shape and it's, it's back to full speed ahead in worship service and Sunday school classes, Bible studies, mission projects, and so much more. Yeah, it feels normal, but there is a flip side where it feels like things aren't quite back there. Movie theaters are sitting mostly empty these days. I mean, kind of the, the, the generic wisdom that's out there is if there's a couple of people going to a movie, it costs you $40, you could just as easily stay home and, and with your remote control and a $10 subscription service to some streaming uh, capability, you've got hundreds and hundreds of movies and television shows right at your fingertips. It also is, we're experiencing something called quiet quitting. Have you seen some of these articles by sociologists and psychologists? Many people overwhelmed by the pandemic and not really excited about their, their job are just doing barely good enough to keep it, C minus. They're just sort of treading the water until they can find something better or putting in a couple of years at the lowest, at the lowest quality of their work until they can safely retire. I've also heard that restaurants are having a real difficult time finding and keeping employees, and part of the reason for that is their customers are sometimes incredibly rude. Kind of what's happening is, is we're projecting onto the servers or the bartenders, the people who are caring for us in, in restaurants, we're projecting our own pain and anger and frustration and anxiety onto them. My, my son, Stephen, works at a very high-end restaurant in Kansas City as a server and as a bartender, and he says, oh, that's been my experience very much, very much so. In fact, he told me the other day, the worst customers are Sunday after church people. <laughs> so when you, if you go to lunch after this service is over, in the name of Jesus, be nice to people, would you please? So yeah, it just, it feels like as though we're still stuck and we just kind of want to get back to normal. The disciples of Christ in the story we heard this morning in John 21, they've gone back to the Sea of Tiberias, back to the region of Galilee. They're, they're fishermen. They're going back to normal, back to what they know how to do. Imagine what they've been through. The days leading up to the crucifixion, the fear, the worry, the anxiety, the ugliness, the brutality. I, I can't even imagine the terror they're experiencing after 
the crucifixion. Certainly, they must be concerned they're next. What happened to Jesus, which is one of the most horrific ways to die in the history of humankind, might happen to us. You can imagine their thoughts. And then Easter. Easter comes, and it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's unbelievable. It, it transfers everything that's been going on in the world before into a new way. Who knows what's going on or how that exactly happened. It's unbelievable. It's overwhelming and almost, almost as difficult to embrace and understand as what happened on Friday. As good as the news is, as terrific as it, as it feels, they still need to take a breath kind of like the church does after Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter Sunday. They just want to get back to normal. In fact, preachers always ask, what do I do after Easter Sunday? Well, Peter answers the question for us. I'm going fishing. Back to Galilee. Back to the Sea of Tiberias. Back to what he knows best. And there they fish all night. There's a man on the shore. We, we, we know it's Jesus, but the disciples don't recognize him. They're about 100 yards off. They've been fishing all night, and they're com they completely failed, have not caught a single fish during the night. This man on the, on the beach, again, we know it's Jesus, but they don't. Hey, how are you doing? How's the, how are things going? We don't see it in the text, but can you hear them grumbling? Who's that guy? Doesn't he know we've been working all night? This is not easy. This is crazy. And then he calls out and says, try the other side. As frustrated as it might be to hear this person on the beach tell them what to do, well, it hasn't worked so far, so let's try the other side. And the next thing you know, they've got this overwhelming catch of fish. Somehow in this amazing moment, their eyes are opened, and the beloved disciple, it may have been John, John says, look, it's the Lord. Peter, good, impetuous Peter, jumps into the, into the sea and makes his way to the shore. And there he embraces his Lord, his friend, his best friend. It's a moment of reconciliation. It's a, mom a moment of recognizing that relationships constantly need to be renewed. In God's economy, God opens our eyes to see each other through love and grace and forgiveness and hope. God wants us to see not only each other, but our relationship to money in the same way. In God's economy, we don't want to look at the world through scarcity. We want to see it through abundance. This story tells us that, that lack can be transformed into abundance. Now, now be careful here. You, you might hear a TV preacher say, well, if your heart's just in the right place or you just believe in Jesus in your right way, then you too will be able to have a private plane of your own just like me. No, no. The Greek phrase for that is horse pucky, just so we're clear. <laughs> that's, in, uh, that's in Hesitations 12.6. You can look that up later on. There's some people going, I don't think I've heard of that book of the Bible before. The story is about renewal. The story is about transformation. The story is about finding the courage to do the right thing. It's a beautiful story. Part of the problem, though, is we get so caught up in comparing ourselves to our neighbors, our family, our coworkers, that it's sometimes difficult for us to live in the moment and appreciate whatever it is we have. Sometimes we turn our lives into a competition and it's about winning or losing and I've got to win this, I've got to win that and I've got to continue to stay ahead of everybody else and we start to see the world through the lens of scarcity rather than the abundance of the gifts we already have in place. Brene Brown help, helps us consider this. Let's put her words up on the screen.
Vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. It's not about winning or losing. It's about having the courage to show up even when we have no control about what's happening around us. It's about being vulnerable, which it turns out is a strength. And when, we're, when we live our lives that way, we suddenly open ourselves up to the ability to collaborate, to share with each other, not only from our hearts and our pocketbooks, but from our love and our forgiveness in so many ways. Lynn Twist tells a story in her book, The Soul of Money, about the time she'd been in meetings all day long in San Francisco. She was there at 7 o'clock in the morning and there until just after 7 o'clock in the evening in meetings that lasted all day. She's on her way home, driving across, on her way to the Golden Gate Bridge in order to go home to Sausalito, which is on the other, just on the other side of the Golden Gate. She looks down just before she's getting close to the bridge and she realizes that her car isn't stopping. Her brakes have suddenly stopped working. She carefully maneuvers her way. Luckily, there's a service station right there to the side. She carefully maneuvers her way into that service station where the attendant comes out and she says, can you fix my brakes? He says, I'm sorry, all we have is oil and gas. I, I can't fix your brakes. But you're in luck. Just a couple of blocks down the road, there is an auto repair shop. Maybe you can coast down there to it. So she does. Carefully pulls out into the street, no brakes, drives slowly, coasts just enough to get into the driveway of the auto repair shop but she can see the door to the office. It's dark. There's a sign that says, we close at 7 p.m. It's about 10 after. But she notices there's a, a, a warm glow of a light off to the side of the garage. So she, she, she gets out of her car thinking she might find a late working mechanic who'd be willing to help her and fix her brakes. She goes around the side and sure enough, there's more than just a mechanic. There's 30 or 40 people there. All of the equipment that they use for repairing cars has been pushed off to the side. They're having a big party and there's a piano right at the center of the party. Well, she walks in the middle of the light, walks up to the, somebody who looks like he's in charge. His name is Rico. Turns out he is the owner of the repair shop. She says, could you please repair my brakes? I, I've got to get home across the bridge. I'm exhausted and tired. Could you help me? She, he says, no, we're in a party. He's got a glass of champagne in his hand. We're having a great time. I can't make any of these guys stop and, and take care of your car. I, I'm sorry. Unless, and he meant this as a joke, he said, unless you play the piano because our piano player is a no-show. And if you play the piano, we'll fix, your, we'll fix your car for you. What he doesn't know is Lynn Twist is an accomplished pianist. She can play anything. Just hum it to her in the ear and she can play it for you. So the next thing you know, they're having this great party. She plays for an hour and they're singing and laughing and dancing and really enjoying everything. And after the hour is over, Rico comes over and gives her a big hug and says, all right, we're going to fix your car for you. This was wonderful. He refuses payment and he just says to her, I'm so glad you could share with us and we could share with you. She writes in her book, that she entered that party exhausted, tired, worn out. She left it energized, excited, and ready for whatever was coming the next day. Why? Because she collaborated and shared. She says that we human beings are hardwired for this kind of collaboration, for this kind of reciprocity, where we share with each other and lift each other up together. But our world, seems to function best 
on competition and fear. We're afraid that we may not be able to keep up, and so we just keep competing against ourselves and against our neighbors and our friends and our family, and the next thing you know, we're absolutely worn out and exhausted. Elizabeth Gilbert writes about this. L listen to her words. You're afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. Anxiety drives so much of our lives, pushes us so hard. It, it ruins relationships, destroys friendships, gets in the way of healthy living. We can see a story like this in the Bible. It's about the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. Saul was a brilliant military commander and a, and a decent politician. He had one fatal flaw, though. He was envious of this young, rising politician, this young, rising military leader in Israel who clearly had great, tremendous gifts, not only for, for leading the military, but also as a politician, greater gifts than Saul's. Saul was extraordinarily envious of this man. You may have guessed by now his name was David. His envy, his jealousy led to him losing his kingdom and losing his life. God wants us to see the world not through the lens of envy, anxiety, and scarcity, but through abundance. God wants to see a world where we're willing to share our gifts of love and forgiveness with each other to both give and receive them as a way of strengthening and encouraging the lives that exist between us. At the end of John chapter 21, there's a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Do you remember the story of Peter on the night before, the night before the, the crucifixion? He denies knowing his friend, his Lord. Three times he denies ever knowing him at all in an angry way. And the third time he said, look, I never knew him. And he swears. And then his friend is left alone. Peter abandons him, turns his back as he dies in agony. Weeks later, here is that same friend, Jesus, on the beach. And Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I love you. Jesus and Peter in that moment are able to see each other not through envy or anxiety, fear or competition, but they're vulnerable enough to name their love, to give and receive forgiveness. Do you know what we call that? It's called amazing grace.